0: Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of
1: knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the human being as an automaton My guest is my good friend James Tunney. He is the author of The Mystical Accord, Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution, The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, Empire of Scientism, Tech Bondage, Human Entrance to Transhumanism, and most recently, Plantation of the Automatons. James lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. It's a real pleasure to be together with you once again. It's been quite a while. Uh, It's great to hook up with you again, and and, uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. The issue today is the human being as an automaton. And it's sort of reminiscent of all of the work of the great philosopher and existentialist and occultist, Colin Wilson, who often suggested that humans tend to go into a a sort of a robotic state of mind, that we really have to work at, at waking up and being fully conscious.
0: Uh, yes, in in relation to the the work that you have done over the years, there's there's a there's a theme which comes up with a lot of thinkers and spirituality is that we live in an unawakened uh, state, or we're in a sleepwalking state, or as Colin Wilson talked about, there's an inner robot that takes over, and this is the same. This has been a preoccupation for many uh, spiritual teachers, as you know, Gurdjieff and and, uh, Osho and and, and them, focus on this idea of a kind of robotic approach to life where we fail to appreciate our consciousness. And Colin Wilson certainly developed that theme, but it was a theme that goes back to ancient Greece, ancient Egypt. It's a recurrent theme. It relates to the idea of the human as a puppet, as a puppet of the gods. And there's another doctrine which is very interesting, the the tread Doctrine, the the sutraman, and and the the idea that we're linked uh, with the the heavens, uh, with Treads, with the gods by Treads. We can see this in Egyptian art. Uh, Ananda Kumrasami has has written about this. Uh, It's very important in, in Indian philosophy. So on the spiritual side, there's also an idea associated with us being... Uh, puppets in some way are controlled or linked in a, in a positive and a negative sense to other forces. So when Colin Wilson is focusing on the idea, he's, he's talking about the way in a psychological sense, the way we do things automatically, the way he, he cites the example of driving a car or doing things that our body knows how, our mind knows how to do so. So that's one aspect of, of us being automatons, the psychological aspect. We could also as well add in uh, a, a context of prosthesis where we take drugs and that we have the studies about zombies. I met Wade, Wade Davis who, who studied the phenomenon of, of zombies in Haiti and the idea and he, he came up with the idea of uh, the use of a neurotoxin uh, might be associated with certain types of zombieism. So we have a similar thing. It's a similar way that we can reduce ourselves to automatic behavior. And now we have to add in extra ideas, ideas that with transhumanism we can have implants which can, by prosthesis again, make us into some kind of uh, automatons. And in addition to that, just to to, to contextualize what we'll discuss about, there's also an idea from mathematics, from Alan Turing, that he starts off with a mathematical idea of an automaton, which was the basis of a lot of uh, development of, of computing and computing science and artificial intelligence, a, a kind of mathematical model of ma- a machine. You wrote a paper in 1936. So there's a series of ideas of, of automatons. But in the spiritual context, that's correct that Colin Wilson and those focused on that robotic elements in us. And it could also manifest itself, for example, in religious practice where we do things robotically as opposed to being involved uh, in the process in a deeper sense.
1: I'm under the impression that there's an extent to which this robotic behavior is very healthy. Uh, I'm thinking now of athletics. If you're uh, performing an athletic skill you want to have it so second nature you don't even think about it it's very robotic but then if you're lucky you go into a zone where you you have the robotic ability but then you transcend that and and that's what great athletes seem to be able to achieve
0: uh, that's right and uh, uh michael murphy has talked about that uh, sports and, uh, and you have talked to him about that issue and I'm also re- reminded of your mentor, Arthur uh, M. Young, who, who talks about the idea that uh, with any system, there's always direction, at a, as he said, at a, at a 90 degree angle to it. There's a- always the higher order. So if you're a musician or a sports person, what you're doing is training yourself to be automatic. If you're a tennis player, you're, you're becoming an automaton in a positive sense. What you're doing is honing your skills to act in a a way that anticipates a range of eventualities so certainly when the person has mastered those skills they've mastered the automaticity relevant to the particular task they want they have the freedom then above that to transcend that and and some sports people have kind of spiritual and mystical experiences associated with that uh, transcendence so Certainly there's a good part, and when if, we go for a, if I go out for a walk around the lake, there's a large part of that is, is automatic. So what the, the the body and mind does is delegate tasks, and as it learns the tasks, we can leave it to that automatic behavior. but there's a, there's a danger the, the, there's a danger that we, we go beyond that and apply this automaticity in inappropriate context. So, so automaticity. Uh, is at one end of the scale and autonomy is at the other end of the scale. And in between, there's a question of activation and aims, uh, the purposes to which we apply um, the that automaticity. So, yes, sports people, musicians, people that are engaged in high skilled uh, jobs, occupations, surgeons. They use a degree of uh, automaticity to perform the functions that are necessary for their occupation.
1: It would strike me that uh, perhaps the most negative example I can think of of automaticity would have to do with war. If a a government wishes to go to war, the citizens often just go along because we're accustomed to doing what the government tells us uh, is right and proper. Uh, People don't often question authority, particularly government authority, but there are many other kinds of authority that we are... I would say, programmed to go along with what authorities tell us, and and often the authorities are beneficent, and it's to our advantage to take, uh, to take advantage of uh, the wisdom that authorities have. But many times, uh, it's really better to question authority.
0: Well, that's exactly right, and there's another level. So when we're talking about this debate, it's wider for me than than uh, the focus that Colin Wilson. Uh, had uh, uh, a totally legitimate, but to add to that is uh, elements that I've noticed in particular from a legal background. When we talk about the corporation, we have to understand that the corporation begins to act like an automaton. It's a separate legal personality and it has particular aims and it can do things that individuals can't do on an individual level. So if you look at the expansion of the British Empire and the European uh, empires, for example, uh, it was because of the legal vehicles they used. Uh, that, was, that was a success and an advantage they had over uh, countries in the Far East, for example. So th- this, this automized, this, this separate legal personality begins to act as, as a particular automatic force. And it can achieve things that can't be achieved on an individual level. And that the development in Britain of the, uh, the trust, for example, that form of legal cooperation has was revolutionary in in relation to the success of what i call success of the british empire uh, around the world so if we think of hobbes and that and and the leviathan the there's the idea as well that the state is a separate force and these forces can become monstrous uh, in in a way so if we think even of say the, the central intelligence agency um it's central uh it it, intelligence is a key a key uh factor and the the link between state collection of intelligence information and intelligence is, is a very close one And agency is important because as you as you said with these agencies we give up our own agency we say okay in this area we're not going to get involved in the process and some other agency decides for us but there's still a responsibility in relation to these forces so uh, with, the, with the war machine, we have a, a separate, an entire military-industrial complex, and then armies in whatever country and whatever time they are run as a machine. So when you're coming into the army, you're you're becoming a component, and this is this is uh, this is very very clear in the recent uh, programs from various mi- military in the Western world and elsewhere. Where they're explaining that as as the automatic battlefield is coming into being, that the human is merely a component in the overall system, and when we look as well at cybernetics, we see that the the, the great advances in cybernetics were really developed for a war context. And Nor- Norbert uh, Weiner Weiner he uh, he 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 began looking at how to increase. Uh, how to increase precision in relation to automatic gunfire for aircraft. And there's always a military context. So the, that machine, that automaton, incorporates the individual. And yes, we lose moral responsibility. So in all these questions, there's, in all these cases, there's a question about to what extent do we relinquish spiritual, in particular, which is a concern for me, and moral responsibility to a machine and distance ourselves through that relinquishment. So, so uh, you're absolutely right on that.
1: It would seem, in some sense, the antidote to automaticity in the human being comes from the, our depths, from, for example, dreams, from fantasies, from the inner life, which no matter how intense the acculturation process is, no matter how much we get squeezed into becoming a cog in the great societal machine, there's always going to be at least some tiny semblance of an inner life, I would think.
0: Well, yes, and the that, that's the hope. And, and, and the reason why uh, your work is important in, in relation to psychology and the study of, of of things which are not commonly accepted uh, shows the importance of these interventions. A lot of access to the spirit world, a lot of mystical experience experiences come in the form of an intervention. They come in as an intervention into a loop, if you like, that we have, we have got into because we learn, and, and this is a key idea in relation to cybernetics, the, the idea of the loop, the idea of the repetition. And we come into loops, loops of thinking, loops of behavior. And often spirituality and mysticism comes from outside or seems to come from outside to intervene in the process. Now, you might say it comes from the right brain to the left brain. There is a, a clear left brain, right brain context, and the bicamerality issues. That Ian McGillcris talks about. So it could be uh, this inner inspiration, if you like. But there's always a sense that it comes from outside, and this is there in the in the UFO experiences as well. But the the problem is that w- whereas that possibility is always there, that we are on the cusp of a technological advance uh, associated with network transhumanism, which threatens to be able to intervene uh, in us uh, using nanotechnology, broadcasting possibilities, microtransistors, to be able to condition the very inner being of humans. And And there was a, a uh, executive order on September the 12th in the United States, which, which talks about a new program, a government program uh, to support industry and bioengineering, which will interfere directly in the circuitry of the human cell uh, so that uh, governance can be like uh, com- a computer, so so that the, the person can be treated as a computer. I mean, that's, that, that's a kind of remarkable uh, statement about uh, where we're going. And the fear is that with the advances in technology, that the possibilities, that richness, that inner possibility, uh, can now be interfered with. And it could be interfered with by preventing things happening so there's another there's a there's a reflexive element of automaticity as we interact more and more with machines that we are conditioned by our interaction with them to be made more automatic to think in a particular way and now with children as are hooked on machines from the time they're, they're born with generation alpha this is part of their nervous system, as Marshall McLuhan uh, anticipated. So it gets more difficult to, to develop those, to develop those possibilities, uh, to recognize them, and especially if we're, ta- if we're living in what I describe as an empire of scientism, where these things are not fully accepted or fully understood. So there's a great danger. That, that great source of uh, inspiration, of, of consciousness, of, of change in society, which always comes from a mystical perspective, can be interfered with and impaired because of a very dominant left brain tendency to try and crystallize, to try and crystallize consciousness. So I see a lot of the technological developments as similar to what uh, king leopold talked about on another occasion on september the 12th if we go back to the 1880s when he's talking about or he, he's anticipating uh, moving into africa and the colonization of africa and the idea of bringing progress into this dark continent which was a disaster and in many senses the human consciousness is is the new dark continent, as they, as they describe, and, and they're creating stations which may be able to impair in a way that was never uh, available to any society or despot or tyrant. So
1: that's the danger. For the moment, let's assume that this progress in this direction Manipulating the human genome, uh, for example, going right into the nucleus of our cells and uh, splicing our DNA, adding uh, new uh, information into our own DNA. Let's assume it's unstoppable for for the moment. And the reason I say that is because the argument will be: we will cure cancer, we will end up uh, making people more intelligent. We will uh, eliminate genetic diseases. There's the lure of uh, progress in, in those areas, and I don't think it can be denied.
0: Well, this this lure is always there. If we go back, we will just develop this one atomic weapon, and then that will be the end of atomic weapons. We will just develop 100 atomic weapons, and that will be the end of atomic weapons. We will just develop 1,000, and that will be the end of atomic weapons. It goes on and on and on. Uh, th- this intervention by science, which is driven by strategic uh, and curi- uh, curiosity, strategic reasons and curiosity, always leads to a proliferation of uh, an arms race. So, yes, we're facing an arms race. They are always very good at selling the uh, the advantages uh, of, of technology. And we've talked before about the pacemaker and the pacemaker is designed to artificially help the uh, inherent physical automaticity in the heart so it is an example of an organic automaticity and a mechanical uh, automaticity and that's obviously good and 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 uh, Im- important so nobody is arguing about that but the vast the vast uh, amount of of resources are invested in ways to kill people uh, so to to do away with them to destroy them and this goes back we can see it going back even in leonardo da vinci developing war weapons. It is the basis of a lot of of technological development. Most industrial production and systems can really be traced to military uh, military systems. For example, like the Venetian arsenal, the shipbuilding and weapons uh, base was a very important source of a lot of developments in scientific theory. And I think Galileo went there. So it's often practical people, engineers, of course, which, come, which refers back to a military origin, who developed these things. And it's the same process now. The problem is that the, the military-industrial complex, who is providing a lot of this uh, wonderful networked uh, technology, uh, is, is the driving force. And what will happen as we move into a globalised world is that the attention will not so much be focused on an external enemy, as focused on the the citizen and it, it's perpetuated by the fundamental idea of cybernetics cybernetics is about governance all the studies that that developed after the second world war were often from people who had been in the war who worked for military firms and they were looking at governance and how they could apply technology to govern the human now this technology has gone to such an extent that that automaton uh, has the capacity to, in a way, become autonomous itself, as John Lilly anticipated, and to control us. So this is why a lot of people, including Terence McKenna and that, believe that we were only a part of a great technocratic system that was coming. Marshall McLuhan talked about us being the sex organs of this, this being that was coming. So uh, John, uh, John Lilly, who you've talked about, Talk about the solid state entity, that the converting organic material into a solid state entity, which will uh, take over this, auto- automatic, uh, this automatic control. So, uh, unfortunately, it's not good. And there may be benefits on the way for certain groups, and they're certainly going to be sold on those benefits. But now we're, they're openly saying that this requires that humans be altered. Uh, for strategic reasons, and, and there's no necessity for that. And now with the, with, the, with the recent health crisis, we have established systems whereby really on a global scale, uh, this, uh, whatever technology can be delivered to the human body uh, very, very quickly, and, and all parties support that. So uh, unfortunately, when I look at the origin of uh, a lot of this technology, it's not positive. The military-industrial complex is behind it, as as a lot of... Uh, standard academic textbooks explain.
1: So that our audience understands, let's be very clear about where you're coming from, which is that you see scientism and the uh, robotization of the human being as a danger, and, and you are, a, would uh, have to say, a rebel against this trend. And I think you're encouraging people to rebel against this trend first of i i i'm
0: i'm in all these things it's a peaceful discussion that 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 we're talking about i'm not against yeah. technology I'm not against space exploration any of that what i'm against is a very particular uh type of scientific growth which was associated with the empires of Europe, which I have defined in terms of an empire of scientism this is This is the system. Uh, which grew in particular in Britain, but we can also see it in Germany and uh, a a Dutch example as well, whereby imperial utilitarian interests were joined with the development of science. And science uh, and the military-industrial complex in these imperial systems came together. And in the 1920s in particular, supported by ideas, sometimes Nietzschean ideas, sometimes communist ideas, sometimes capitalist ideas, sometimes upper class ideas, began to uh, coalesce around people like Bernal. And they began to understand that they could control the human body and that this was, a, this was an important goal, that we would have a, a caste, an elite of, of scientists who would control the rest of people, which they didn't have a good view of. They were either uh, animals was one description, or machines, and therefore they were as superior scientists were entitled to to, to govern us now that reflects a certain a certain view which permeated the anglo american uh, military industrial complex. Churchill talked about the coming empire of the mind so what i 'm saying is this is a, a very very real danger it 's a very real danger that we have to be careful about. What the uh, the nature of production of these interventions in human consciousness are. Now, my st- starting position in all of this is that uh, uh, we should be spiritually evolving. We should be developing uh, our autonomy. Our autonomy. No man is an island, uh, but we we have to develop our our inner sovereignty and our responsibility to ourselves, to other people. We have to from there. Recognize the integrity of other people, transcends our differences and and uh, technology is a tool but uh, Steiner talked about this he, he said from the time uh, from his time that the future of humanity would always face this uh, this challenge from now on about the merger of humans and and machine. Now, this current phase when people are unaware of the possibilities where unaware or don't have control over the governance system is a very vulnerable period for the human race, which I believe the human race could be fundamentally altered in it by the desire, the overzealous desire to govern uh, humans, to take away the unpredictability. Now, there'll always be good reasons. You can say it's for good governance. We'll turn bad people into good people, and that was the idea that Anthony Burgess explored in A Clockwork Orange. Now, I'm saying that that's a very, very dangerous possibility that it emerges from the opportunity of technology and that we have to be very, very careful about what we're subscribing to, in particular on a mass scale. So I'm not against the technology. Uh, I, I'm not afraid of technology. I'm afraid of, of the, the use of technology. And you don't have to be a, a genius to work out that uh, technology has been misused and it's used against nature. It's used against uh, people. It's used against society. And uh, Tolkien was was one of the people that realized this. He said at the end of the Second World War that the Second World War was over, but the war continues because he saw a great conflict between the machine and human conscien- consciousness, which is why he and C.S. Lewis sought to develop and focus on the, the imaginal world, the imagination, uh, fantasy, those deep elements of the secondary imagination, which are necessary for us to understand who we are. So it's an occasion for us to really reflect on on who we are in, in, in that context.
1: Okay, uh, two points. Uh, one is I think you meant the First World War, not the Second World War with regard to Tolkien.
0: No, the, 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 he was involved in the First World War, but when the Second World War was uh, finished, his, his son mentioned about, uh, so it, it was about the, it was in relation to the second
1: World War I think that his son quoted. The other point, now I did refer to you as a rebel and you pointed out that that didn't mean that, that you advocated violence. And I, I'd like to go back to a conversation we once had about the rebellion in Ireland. You're Irish, and and I know you have a lot of emotion about Irish history and and what has happened there, but I do remember you telling me at one point, because there was a lot of violence involved in resisting the British Empire, that you didn't think it was worth shedding uh, blood and, and losing lives to fight the British Empire.
0: The reason why I didn't think that is because I think it's been ultimately a failure. And the reason why, if you look at people like Sean McBride, Sean McBride was an interesting character. He was a barrister. He was chief of staff of the IRA. He was an Irish minister. He later won the Nobel Peace Prize and he he won the Lennon Peace Prize as well. And he was a a key driver in the... uh, Development of the European Convention of Human Rights, Amnesty International, the working on international human rights. And so he was involved in violence and he was very, very clear in that context about the limitations of the use of violence. Though as an international lawyer, he would support, he would have supported the independence struggles, particularly in Africa, uh, because there are legal conditions and legal rights in relation to self-determination. So uh, my argument, uh, in, in, in some senses, is, is a strategic one, that uh, if one is, is making decisions like that, it has, to be, it has to be successful, it has to achieve its purpose. And none of them managed to ultimately uh, protect the things that they were fighting for, the idea of an independent, uh, cultural, homogenous, uh, separate identity, because there was too much focus on, the uh, political context when really most of the forces were economic technological they had moved beyond and, and the british knew that uh, i'm not i'm not talking about the context where and in my family would have uh, utilized uh, they, they they were active in that and they were they were in a military occupied uh, context where they were uh, fighting for the protection of their their families and that so that there are distinctions that have to be made and i'm not I'm not saying that uh, it's not legitimate to defend yourself. What I'm saying is that the utilisation of violence, particularly as it was developed in the in the sixties, uh, ultimately failed in what it, it it was seeking to do, and it failed because the, these take the IRA for example. A lot of people assumed that the IRA was was a Catholic organisation, but there was a a big Marxist influence and the. The system, the automatic machine, was was taken over in many senses. Uh, so this is a danger you're dealing with all these games when people get into those games. And if people don't focus on the spiritual evolution, if they don't focus on, on, on those issues, that ultimately any achievement, uh, true weaponry, true violence, uh, will be uh, w- will will not amount to anything so uh, in many senses it's it's looking back on that when I think of the people that gave their lives or sacrificed or or engaged in, in in certain rebellions if you had asked them now whether they would have taken lives for what became uh in the terms in which they were fighting for it I think a lot of them would uh would be very unsure about that
1: So with regard to the emerging new technologies, you you have suggested the day may come when people will be forced to have computer chips implanted in in their bodies. And I I think what you're saying, it's good to anticipate that and develop a movement now, a nonviolent movement to oppose that sort of thing.
0: That's certainly uh, one strategy. What I want to do personally it's two things, and this is what our conversations have, have been about. What I absolutely share with you is our commitment to the importance of wider human consciousness, to recognition of the full extent and to commit ourselves to spiritual evolution as the solution to, to all of these things. And, and that is, is the answer. Unless we evolve spiritually, all these other issues uh, will never be solved in their own terms. So, so that, that's the first point. Uh, secondly, the greatest threat to that is this uh, rise in, in in technology. So yes, uh, what I want to do is to identify a robust analysis which is based not on conspiratorial uh, imaginings, but on clear evidence that's available, on on good evidence, where people can examine the argument that I make and and test it uh, by reference to to, to the sources. And, and, and then test the hypothesis by comparison to the predictions that I make about what is happening. Even that uh, I, I had kind of anticipated that uh, executive order in relation to this idea of controlling the circuitry in the cells. So, if my hypothesis is right, uh, it will unfold before your eyes. And, and, and so, I want to provide a robust analysis. Then the question is, and I, I, I do have discussions. Where people are, who are interested in their views around the world who, who, who do different things, some of them uh, establish interest in community projects uh, to try and grow their own become independent try, uh, grow their own food uh, be self sufficient educate people about the environment etc, get a balance and with, with technology so some of them have different strategies so there is a great interesting uh, evolution of, of, of strategies in relation to where we are going. So, in many senses, the, the people, the, the mechanism of opposition uh, has to be entirely different. Uh, one, uh, it has to be non violent. Secondly, by it, the nature, if, if I am correct, and I'll also that we are, another important aspect of this is the thrust of cybernetics is to realize a, a, a dream which was articulated in the nineteenth century about creating a machine of governance, so the governance system of the of the the, the new world order the global order is going to be automatic that, that that's an important point point. Uh, and s- s- the old strategies are not going to to work the 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 old ideas uh, even of nonviolent support are not going to work so Consistent with the idea of spiritual evolution and application of consciousness, we really have to uh, engage on a on a, a much broader level in an imaginative uh, way uh, to persuade people about alternatives so I, I I believe that we really have to challenge ourselves to look for a different way of thinking, a really radically different way of thinking which will which will be built on a Identification: a robust analysis, which is not intended to be divisive or hateful, which is respectful for all people, and we can begin to look at these the challenge of the auto, autonomous phenomena of automaticity and systems of governance that, that that's growing. So yes, the the biggest issue that we have is to escape from the paradigms, and there is there's there's a very interesting work by Donella Meadows who worked with the Council of Rome, and who, who sought to explain different levels of how a society has changed. And ultimately, the number one reason, apart from persuasion and propaganda and organisation, the ultimate force, the number one force she identified, and she was important in in, in discussions on uh, global governance, was a, to re-engineer the paradigm that we operate in. So what I'm saying is that that's the kind of, I know it's people don't believe in the power of paradigms, but we really have to rethink where we are. And that, that requires that we relinquish some of our attachments. It requires, for example, in relation to perennial philosophers, that they begin to go outside their, their, the zones in which they are automatic to begin to seek dialogue at a higher level. So instead of saying, I'm a Muslim, uh, I'm a Hindu, I'm, I'm a Catholic, to begin to rise above that. And that's a challenge for people who have given, if you like, their whole belief system over to someone else, over to an automatic system. I'm not saying to relinquish those things, but really the challenge requires that we become unattached to some of the specificity uh, of the paradigms that we have. And it is at that level of robust analysis, which gives rise to some values which can orientate the possibilities for peaceful evolution to combat these dangers, to anticipate these dangers. And yes, to look at the uh, problems associated with the military-industrial complex. As some of your presidents anticipated, it did happen. The military-industrial complex is running the show. And uh, part of it is a persuasion uh, that ultimately... The, the the dreams that some of these people have are are, gonna, are not going to, to to work.
1: Well, you've certainly given me the impression that that the approach you're arguing for is not simple minded. It's it's subtle. It it doesn't involve, as you say, relinquishing our attachments so much as becoming aware of them. Uh, if if I'm correct, the, I I remember. Back in the 1960s, a similar message coming from Timothy Leary when he said, tune in, turn on, tune in, drop out. And, and people were dropping out of society. It was the birth of the hippie generation that I identified with, although I never really dropped out. I remained associated with colleges and universities throughout that era. Uh, but I don't think you're telling people to, to drop out, as tempting as that might seem.
0: Uh, I have a different view on Timothy Leary from most people. If you look at his SMILE policy about space exploration, increased in human intelligence, he was very much into prosthesis. He would have been and he was a transhumanist in my view in any uh, proper definition, as was Terence McKenna. If you look at what he said and about the uh, psychedelics in the age of the intelligent mind, he's talking about changing humans with psychedelics uh, and and technology and they were quite committed to that. I'm not. I'm against that. And unfortunately for me, if you look at uh, Timothy Leary, uh, he's very much associated with this uh, this context about uh, proximity to government, despite the fact that he's in jail and all that. There is an element of his his, his views that puts him very proximate to uh, the orthodoxy that wants to uh, to push this. So a uh, part of my analysis is, is questioning, actually, that milieu that you are in, Geoffrey, uh, and, and the hippie movement, because uh, the, it has to be revisited in many senses. And I think you get this sense from some of the talks that you have from people that were involved in it. Uh, and it comes true in their discussions, people who were at the center of that uh, great efflorescence. That there was a, an element and a darker element of control and experimentation that was, that, that was there as well. The possibility uh, is there. And to what extent there was, this was useful to the government to create a movement in the context of, of, Uh, Vietnam uh, War or experiments with psychedelics etc it suited it suited an agenda and uh, the agenda that Huxley would have warned uh, about so the point that I'm making is that uh, and dropping out certainly no it's not going to work you you won't be able to drop out because in uh, the society of the future uh, everywhere is going to be scrutinized and controlled so the dream of going out into the into the wood and escaping it is not going to to work and in fact in accordance with some of the plans of the united nations the, the 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 ability to to be in certain places is not going to be available so the dropping out is uh is not possible uh i think we have to look critically at some of the people that it's easy when someone comes along and says here we go Here's the drug, and this solves it all. That's all you have to do. Take this. Uh, it's too simple for me. And I know this argument is made, and I get I, I got, I I pushed back from people saying, oh, you don't understand about psychedelics. I do understand. I've read the literature. I do understand the benefits as well. I, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying about the danger that we uh, give, we, we give in, in in the way that Huxley talked about. We relinquish our sovereignty for some pacified state by prosthesis, or assume that either technologically uh, we, we, we can improve ourselves. And part of this, Jeff, is a strange misanthropy. There's a dreadful misanthropy associated with some of these movements that seem to hate the human condition as it is, that seems to be unwilling to examine ourselves as moral beings that need to, to, to look at that inner, to do that inner work uh, first. And associated with that misanthropy, I believe... There, uh, there is a kind of mechanophilia. Now I know that's uh, th- th- that's a particular uh, term, but in this widest sense, this great love of machines and this great love of machines some s- goes in some way together with this misanthropy. And in fact, even look at this. If you look at the figures. For the growth in things like sex dolls, and good luck to them. I'm not criticising anyone that, that, that that's into that uh, type of thing. But if you look at the the, the 30 billion uh, industry as the latest quantifications, for example, and the idea of uh, literal, you know, literal engagement, uh, loving machines, and the idea that, that this is replacing humans, uh, there's there's great in, there's great uh, issues there about about our relationship to machines, and there's. My, uh, I heard Jordan Peterson. He did a talk recently, and I haven't heard much of him uh, in, the, in the last few years. But he did a talk recently with a chap. It's called True Jordy in in, uh, in England. And before the uh, the talk, he didn't realise he was being recorded. I don't know if it made any difference, but he said that uh, the 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 line for him was if someone came to take his car because the car for him. And he was quite vehement about it. The car for him was radical autonomy. And I was thinking, well, they, they, that's, that's an interesting perspective. Because for many people, the autonomy they talk about is an autonomy of a machine, of an automobile. So this this is a strange idea for a person who's so interested in, in, in those issues. My argument is that we really have to explore. And this is what all the spiritual teachers say. We have to explore in a radical way, our radical autonomy uh, as individuals and to understand the full idea of the kingdom of heaven being within us to understand the full potential of spiritual consciousness to understand the full possibilities of noetic inputs of as you have had in your life of of gifts that seem to come or that come from the spiritual world that alter us uh, these are things that no automatic system will ever be able to do. And we have to be careful that we don't, as Steiner talked, we don't give up our spirituality to the Aramanic force that he saw uh, in science.
1: Well, I know Steiner, for example, in the Waldorf schools are, are very concerned about young children being engaged with computers at a very early age. They think it's contrary to the natural evolution of the human being. And in your life, you and I are communicating right now via uh, an electronic system. So, I know that you, you don't reject them entirely, but I do know that you choose not to own a cell phone. And so, you, you try to find certain limits that seem appropriate to yourself in that regard.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't have a cell phone. Uh, I don't drive. We don't have we don't have television. I don't need television, Geoffrey, because there's certain people will re- automatically repeat what's on. So if I want to hear what the discourse is, I just go and ask them, and they'll they, they'll report without unconsciously. So I I don't have them. Yeah, I think if you look at some of the size of television now, and you look at the way children are put in front of them, they're so dominant, so pervasive that this th- there's a cost. This is the big thing that people always stress the advantages, the advantages, or look at the advantages, and they never stress the cost of these systems. Now, all these systems, whether uh, television uh, or the internet, the they work on the basis of having everyone have access to them. They work on the power of network effects. But it is a net. It is a web. And once one is involved in it, then as functions are... Are brought into the loop, become dependent once you become dependent on it it's a different it's a different ball game, and then the power shifts and then your opportunity you're in a vulnerable position uh, so this is the danger people don 't really understand the power of networks, the power of network effects the reason why initially all this technology is fantastic because it gives opportunity the way Zoom, for example, came all of a sudden when there was a need for it. One has to be uh, very, very suspicious about that. And people like Jacques Vallée, for example, uh, that you have talked to uh, recently and you've talked to for a long time and known for a long time, some of his more interesting work for me was when he talks about uh, he talks about the way the, the Soviets took over in the Baltic countries and how strategic and specific it is to to decapitate a, a a sovereign state by taking out key individuals in it and, and, and from his uh, scientific and mathematical background uh, he, he, he understands that uh, the simplicity, the simplicity of this so I, I, I do think that uh, the, there is a supreme court, in a supreme court judgment in two thousand and fourteen uh, I think it was in a judgment that one of the Supreme court judges anyway he may have said in a private talk. Said that if a, a, a being came from outer space and he saw humans now, he would think that he, uh, a, a, the mobile phone was an attachment to the human body. Now that's, this is a, a serious, a serious phase we're we're entering into, and the, and children now are are hooked, as Bill Gates hoped they would be. That's why he said in in, in his uh, book, the, "The The Road Ahead." This this language of being hooked uh, to things being dependent. I don't like We're very, very dependent. And as we get more dependent on it, the power of the centralized forces, which are transnational forces, corporate forces that are more powerful than, than governments, uh, that are not beholden to anybody, that are not committed to any ethical principles, that are merely uh, interested in, in, in their own power, and, and the magic that Norman uh, Weiner talked about, the the, the gadget worship, the sorcery element this is what the people in cybernetics warned about uh, so the, the, the idea i don 't think people understand the cost of looking at television i don 't th- think they understand how powerful a medium it is uh, and how addictive it is and how powerful powerfully it motivates uh, other people so i certainly uh, certainly am very happy. With with the uh, frugal or you know a technical frugal approach, there's there's better ways at using technology. I was always in favour of technology. That's one of my the reasons why uh, I'm concerned about it. I used uh, I gave lectures with with, with this technology and on, on satellites before other people were were doing it. I was an early adopter in some senses. So I'm aware of all those possibilities. They're always there, but we have to distinguish between uh, use of technology and the use of or creation of networks by the military-industrial complex which are imbued with a philosophy of surveillance and security and which regards the citizen as a threat or a potential threat and one that must be managed and must be managed more and more. And we can see this in China. And China wouldn't have been able to do what it did without the support of the United States and the technology from California as well.
1: Well, you've raised a very interesting argument. Let me suggest what might be or might not be a counterpoint. I'm thinking of evolution and how biological evolution started out with single-celled organisms, and now, after several billion years of evolution, we have human beings, and each of us, you and I, have billions of cells in our body but these cells are not autonomous organisms anymore they exist to support us if if they don't support us we think that maybe it's a cancer or a disease that needs to be removed and at the same time i see What's happening now is we are building this infrastructure, and it's an electronic infrastructure. There are thousands of satellites now circling this planet. There are cable networks all across the planet. It's as if we are building a planetary nervous system, and we humans are literally creating a new organism. And So there's a sense in which The things that are happening could be viewed, rather than as mechanical, could be viewed as organic.
0: Yes. But take the example of the cables. Uh, A very important period was in the 1850s, 1860s. And in this period, we have the the laying down, in particular, the the British uh, imperial laying down of the submarine cables which followed all the sea routes, which still were up to very recently. Well, they're still very important across the Atlantic, transatlantic cables uh, around Africa. They followed the sea routes. So they were building this uh, network from that time. We had the uh, growth of the telecommunications uh, union from the uh, 1860s. We had the laying of the telegraphs. And this was a conscious part, but it was a conscious Building of a system of imperial control—that—that that, that was where it came from. It didn't—it didn't come from. Oh, it'd be very interesting to facilitate a thing that Jeff will be able to talk uh, with James in the future. It was about, or, or to bring people together. It was about the creation of of, of the, the the military-industrial complex. And and this is is very interesting in the in the great uh, the, the exhibition in the Crystal Palace in eighteen sixty-two, uh, Dostoevsky comes to London, and he comes into the Crystal Palace. And the Crystal Palace is a very important symbol. We can talk about that again sometime. But he looks at all this, the great technology, and, and, and he says, he realizes that that was, that was very significant for him. He realizes uh, that this is the future, that living inside. And he, he, he identified it, as Steiner did. Steiner identifies with Araman. He identified it with Baal. He couldn't believe that, that what he saw, it, it really profoundly affected him. So he saw in this system some commitment to another, another type of worship. There was, a, there was a spiritual esoteric dimension. And uh, you can see it with Ginsberg. He, he, he describes this industrial system as Moloch, and we can think of Mammon as well. So strangely, there is a deeper sense that there is an ancient, an ancient spiritual viewpoint which is beside, and some people trace the word mechanical back to Babylonian period, although there's a lot of discussion about that. So the argument, uh, there is an argument that, uh, there is certainly that argument, this is what a lot of people, even McKenna says about, we join together, and this is what Taylor de Chardin talks about, And, and a lot of these people saw it in terms of a crystalline structure, and to some extent, there's a crystallization of the human mind as well. We're turning something flowing into something which is fixed and structured. And that's what they intend uh, to do with, with human consciousness. So certainly, if we look at a human, we can regard ourselves as a biome, as, as, as a collection of different forces. There are many organisms. The man of war is not the, the, the jellyfish kind of figure, it? Is, is is three different uh, animals. I think principal animals come together. Uh, we recognize that but all the spiritual traditions emphasize the uniqueness of of the human whether you take it from a kabbalistic perspective or a, a hindu perspective or a catholic perspective there's a, there's this idea that we are created in the image of the divine that we have the divine spark that we're a fractal of the divine force Uh, or a hologram uh, consistent with the discussion you had with Michael uh, Talbot for example that we have in some way a reflection of the divine force within us Uh, and the alternative view the view of this coming together is to uh, a relinquishing of that autonomy to a bigger force now that bigger force for Steiner is the Aramanic force, it is the dark force in in the universe and in Christian terms when uh, the devil is tempting Christ the temptation is really the power in the material world, this is the consistent argument, this is the basis of of, of Dr. Faustus Uh, you can have all the power you want in this world but we'll take your soul that Faustian pact is there so in if you take a spiritual tradition, a spiritual approach, you're not going to relinquish this thing because the idea is that you have a spark, a talent, that you have the possibility to uh, to grow beyond time and space in the next world. And that if you make a, an agreement or an acquiescence or a pact to relinquish that, to give it up to somebody else, to some other force uh, or to some dream of a, a great future and evolution, that you are relinquishing your, your eternal soul. So that that that's the, the spiritual uh, objection to it. And then when you look at what these uh, people have said about this future uh, evolution, uh, there is there are often people that don't believe in, in the spirit. That's why part of the transhumanist thing is this desire for immortality. Although if you make a Faustian pact you will want immortality. And that, that, that's a, a, a trend in these stories that because you have given up your, your, your eternal soul, you're going to want to live longer and stay in, the, in this mundane element. So that argument is there and people seem to be desperately desirous of this drop in the water, melting into the oceans, losing their autonomy because they don't like it. And Dostoevsky said that, that people hate this responsibility and they're willing to give it up at the drop of a hat. uh, He didn't use those words, but that was the implication. They're willing to give it up because that's that's a frightening thing for them, this responsibility, this idea that you have a soul and you're responsible for it, and and this gift, to look at the gift as as a great objection. So uh, all the spiritual traditions, in my view, uh, they do suggest that you, if you look at Exodus, for example, and Leon Kassa has written about this, although he, he's not coming from a religious perspective, he says that although uh, the, the Israelites, is, uh, the Jews, escaped from Egypt, it wasn't uh, they weren't escaping to a total freedom. That wasn't the idea. They're escaping to a context where they could serve the higher order. So in all these ideas about the individuals linked to the higher forces and to God by a string or the Sutrama, or, or the, the Accord. Uh, there's an idea that you have freedom, but it's freedom which is limited by the golden rule, by the perennial philosophy, by having to abide by the Tao, to recognize other people, for example. So there are inherent limitations. But none of them talk, in my, in my in my idea, about, or my interpretation, really about relinquishing your soul. You can find certain... Trends in Buddhism and that, but uh, it wouldn't be the interpretation that I would take uh, of them. And all the perennial philosophy emphasises the significance of the sovereignty, the identity of your spiritual consciousness, uh, and that's at the base. That that's what we're meant is meant to evolve. We're not meant to give it away to somebody else who may have and probably does have nefarious purposes. And in that sense, we're at a we're at a, a point where we can decide that all that spiritual stuff was nonsense, and we can decide to
1: relinquish our soul to de- the devil, if you will. Well, I know in my conversations with Charles Upton, uh, a religious traditionalist, uh, he emphasizes the uniqueness of the human form. He, he he sees that as being very important across all religions, and and that we we have to understand that we occupy a very special place in in the universe as, as we are now, not as we will be in some future evolution.
0: It's a very strange thing, but that, yes, that's absolutely right. And if you look at people who were great anticipators of the problems of technology, for example, Jacques Ellul, who wrote The Technological Society, which is a seminal book, uh, Anticipating The rise of technique, which would displace the human, uh, similar to to Gunther Anders and the obsolescence of man. And Bernard Charbonneau, another French critic of of technology. Uh, Both of them emphasized the incarnation. Now, uh, Jacques Ellul had come from a Marxist background, but he changed and a kind of uh, anarchist background. He believed that anarchism and, and Christianity was closer than people thought. But they both emphasize incarnation, the significance in Christian terms of the divine coming into human form. And it's similar in relation to the avatar idea in, in our practice, whatever you want to call it, in, in India. So, uh, yes, the the human body is, is critical and it reflects something divine. And even if you look at some of the humanoid dis- or, or the descriptions of beings which uh, in the UFO context, uh, etc., or some of the descriptions of being other beings which may live on on this earth, they do have some similarities to the human form. So there there are good reasons, in many ways, uh, to fix the limitation and opportunity of of the human body. And there has been a failure to uh, build on that uh, that efflorescence that happened in the in the Renaissance about the humanist efflorescence, which emphasized the significance of the human body and the the, the, the beauty and, and the, uh, the, measure, the the measure, the, the idea that the human is the, is the measure of the world. And technology has, has took us to a different place where we want to measure by different speeds, where we want to measure, uh, compare ourselves with digital force and with computers. And we pay a price for that. So there is... A fundamental issue about, about uh the body and about the idea that it's a mago day or a reflection of the divine and the or the divine spark in terms of of cabalistic uh ideas or the light within us so the even if we regard ourselves whether from an agnostic form or other forms as that I discussed about light which is in this physical form. Uh, this is a, a physical form that's, it's still a carrier. Now we, we, we it, it is a particular carrier and it's a carrier that in the traditions, which was the, divinely inspired, whatever way it came about, whether you accept that uh, or not. So certainly the, the, the human body as it is, uh, now it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that we don't, uh, we, we, we don't look after it in, in, in the best way that we can. We don't assist it. If we need, to restore normal expectations to it. Uh, but there, there is something about limitation as being the basis as well of all, all development. And the fact that we are separate beings, the great joy that we don't have to live in someone else's head as well, uh, as well as our own, <laughs> that we've enough to be doing in looking after our own uh, human mind, consciousness and body, that gives us the the free will to explore, in in, in according to our our means and, and and possibilities.
1: Well, earlier in our conversation, James, I identified you as a, a rebel, but it seems to me at this point that uh, more than being a rebel, you are a champion of the idea of individual human sovereignty.
0: Yes but not in the way that Ian Rand talked about, not in the way that a lot of atomistic uh, analysts, the, 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 what I I'm champion is the, the, the human spirit and the human spirit, and not to the exclusion of other spiritual interpretations. For example, we really have to assess our relationship with animals as well um, and our, our relationship with the, with the natural world. But, They are all consequences, in my view, of accepting our full spiritual nature and exploring the wider notions and wider relationships. For example, the Celtic church's attitude towards nature, uh, towards the divine feminine, for example, uh, is different than what happened uh, afterwards. So the human spirit is the essence and spiritual consciousness, as Evelyn Underhill talked about. Now, what I would say is, that if one activates, because even with automatic systems, you have to activate them. Uh, if one activates the, the human spirit, the human consciousness, it's only when we begin to activate and cultivate the, the consciousness that the possibilities, the creative possibilities, the receptivity, that's the basis of Kabbalah, opens up. So our possibilities for inspiration uh, increase and the full potential of spiritual evolution uh, is available to us so that we don't uh, stagnate and so from that human spirit becomes the uh, comes the other relationships we have to repair our relationship with nature we have to repair repair the relationships to to other humans and we have to begin to reassess some of the, the directions that were taken so the spirit aspect is, is the is the key uh, the key element. I don't mind being, being being the rebel element at all. I just to clarify for people, uh, as I've said, because sometimes when you come from an Irish background, they automatically believe that you, you support violence, uh, and I've had that before. Um, so uh, yes, I, 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 I accept in in relation to the idea that we have the opening up of the spirit, that we have the exploration uh, of the continent of the spirit and the spiritual consciousness and the application in a a, a sensible and disciplined way to the problems problems that we have and to begin to really think in a way which anticipates uh, solutions to the problems and that requires really moving up to a different level uh, of thought and uh, expl- exploration of paradigms, uh, uh, as we've said. But spirit is the basis.
1: Well, James Tunney, what a pleasure to be with you again, to have this conversation. It, it's so rich. There are so many different threads to these discussions, and you handle them beautifully. I'm delighted to be back with you once again and look forward to many more conversations with you on New Thinking Aloud, James Thank you so much for being with me today. It's great talking to you again, Jeff.
0: Can I have a final thought? Have you got time? Yes, of course. There was just, uh, I read it recently, and I I have read a lot, as you know, about Swedenborg, and I'm very interested in Swedenborg, as you are. And uh, one story stuck out recently when I I was looking at it. It didn't register before. Uh, uh, This was in a secondary source. I've read a lot of, 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 of what he has written. But it reminded me, it rang a bell. as a very interesting little story. It's about his mentor, uh, which was Christopher Polhem, or Polhem. And he was a great Swedish inventor, a scientist. He he, he developed, uh, and this is in the 17th century, to, uh, the uh, early 18th century, he developed, um, it was at the time of Linnaeus as well, a it was believed to be the first automatic factory in the world. He developed a, a way uh, of uh, a few different inventions which worked automatically. Now he created his automatic systems with wood, so a lot of the what we would recognise now as mecha- as machines and metal were were done in wood first, and this is where the innovations came from. So he was a great a great uh, scientist, a practical person, and swedenborg went to uh, he knew him for about three years and he worked as his assistant and he also published one of the well, certainly the first scientific magazine in sweden uh, in the early uh, 1700s uh, called uh, De- daedalus hyperboreus and it's about Hem. and uh, they, they separated and went went to their own ways later on as we know that Swedenborg, who was also engaged in studies of the brain and uh, anticipated some modern uh, uh, discoveries of the brain, he moved, as we know, into spirituality and left his scientific uh, background after he, he had his, his relationships with God. And Swedenborg, for people that don't know, uh, was believed to be able to travel into the next world, to, to heaven and hell. And it's quite incredible when you read what he has written about them. No other person has written as much about the uh, the afterlife that I know of. But he went to see Paul Hem when he was in the afterlife, which is quite remarkable. So not, not a seance or anything like that. He w- believes he's going into the other dimension. And he said that in the next world, the great uh, mechanical or uh, mechanistic thinker was there and uh, he was still working on his machines and he couldn't He couldn't take the reality of the spiritual world uh, seriously. And things got worse for him, according to Swedenborg, because then he began to try and create devices in the afterlife to communicate with the evil spirits in hell. And as a result of that, according to Swedenborg, his old friend was uh, was sent to the darker regions of, of the afterlife. It's quite, uh, quite an incredible story. And the other Swedish connection was, of course, um, Descartes, who we, we could have mentioned, who was fascinated with automata and who his ideas of the automaton as the basis of, of a lot of his philosophy and who supposedly created an, autom- uh, an automaton which reflected his daughter who had died when she was five. And uh, he, he, of course, died uh, in, in Stockholm. But um, yeah, we'll continue our conversation. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's it's fantastic to to be continuing our conversation. Appreciate it.
1: It's truly a joy for me. Incredibly stimulating, and uh, I uh, plan to schedule more conversations with you as soon as I finish the editing of this one. James, thanks once again for being with me. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.